Good Monday morning and welcome to Connect, the California MBA's weekly podcast featuring one-on-one interviews with movers and shakers in the mortgage industry. I'm Dustin Hobbs, Communications Director here at the California MBA, and it is July and we're continuing our conversation with some of the top legal minds in the mortgage industry. We're talking about uh, litigation, legal, regulatory trends in the uh, in the industry today, and uh, it's, I think we've had some great conversations so far, some good practical takeaways for lenders and uh, what they can do to uh, uh, mitigate and reduce their, their risk, what, thing, what uh, cases and trends to look out for. And I think we'll have another good uh, conversation here this morning. But uh, before we do that, let's thank our sponsors over at Incelerate. So Incelerate helps lenders close more loan through better borrower engagement. The mortgage industry's most innovative customer experience platform delivers lead management, sales enablement, engagement, a robust mortgage-specific content library, and data intelligence, all in one comprehensive and highly scalable platform. Incelerate delivers dynamic technology, strategy, and content for every channel of your business to ensure engagement throughout the customer journey, whether that be with your borrowers, referral partners, or any other party to the loan transaction. The dynamic enterprise solution seamlessly fits into your tech stack, whether that's your phone integration, your POS, LOS, servicing system, or data enrichment, due to the advanced API connectivity, modern design, and open architecture. So gone are the days of managing multiple and separate systems like your CRM, your marketing automation, lead management, and having your data trapped in those silos. The innovative platform at Incelerate allows you to provide your internal and external customers timely, relevant information based on data intelligence to build repeatable outcomes at each stage of the customer's journey. So bottom line, close more loans, improve borrower conversions, enhance customer retention, transform your customer acquisition lifestyle, life cycle, I should say, and uh, create customers for life, which I think is the uh, the bottom line for everyone in the industry right now. So for more information, visit Incelerate.com or you can contact them at the number listed in the description below. So before we jump into the conversation, I want to toss it over to Susan Malazzo, our CEO, for this week's weekly update. Susan. Thanks, Dustin. Hi, this is Susan with the California MBA. And this week, I'd like to talk with you about our Western States Craft Conference happening September 8th through the 10th in person uh, at the ARIA in Las Vegas, which is a new venue for us this year. Uh, we're pleased to be welcoming uh, for our keynote luncheon presentation, Willie Walker, CEO of Walker and Dunlop, interviewing Bill Hornbuckle, CEO of MGM Resorts. And a big thank you to our keynote luncheon sponsor, Archway Capital. If you're in the commercial real estate finance industry, this is the event that you do not want to miss. Uh, you can register before the end of July and take advantage of our discounted early bird registration rates as well as get into our hotel room block. I look forward to seeing you in September in Las Vegas. Back to you, Dustin. All right, thanks, Susan. Now let's jump into the conversation. I'm excited to welcome in a friend of the association. He's been a member for quite a while now and been uh, uh, very engaged in our uh, our conference planning for our Legal Issues Conference. And he's been a part of our uh, Legal Issues Committee for a while now. He actually serves as, as the secretary for the Legal Issues Committee. Jarlath Karan with uh, Sieberson. He's a, he's a member with Sieberson and Morrison, and uh, also, as I mentioned, uh, secretary on our Legal Issues Committee. So, Jar, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah. Well, let's start out at the beginning here. Let's uh, what tell us about your background for maybe those that don't uh, that don't don't know you yet. 
Uh, tell us how you got uh, involved in the industry, what uh, you know, drove you to become a, uh, a litigator, and uh, you know, what, uh, what brought you to where you're at at Severson. Sure. So uh, initially, you know, my path wasn't on the, uh, the way to, to litigation. Uh, I actually went to college to be an engineer. Uh, I got my bachelor's in science in civil engineering. My dad was a nuclear engineer, worked for uh, SoCal Edison at the power plant down in San Onofre. So as a kid, that's, that's just what I knew, right? My dad was an engineer. I'm just going to go ahead and be an engineer like my dad. Um, so I went to LMU, Loyola Marymount, to, to get my civil engineering degree. Uh, about halfway through college, thought, you know, this might not be for me in terms of a, of a career in engineering. Um, but still stuck it out to get the degree. One of my older sisters, uh, she was and is a practicing lawyer. She does plaintiff side uh, medical malpractice is her specialty. So I was familiar with litigation through her, um, seeing what she did. It, it, it seemed like, like a good, uh, a good career to have. So switched my focus, you know, during college to, I'm going to go to law school afterwards. Um, so went to law school. You know, at that time, given my my engineering degree and kind of the more math science side of things, I, I thought maybe my career would take me down to intellectual property or patent law, maybe tax law, um, something like that. But, you know, out of law school, when I was applying for jobs, um, my, my first job was doing mostly mortgage defense um, at uh, Wright Finley and Zach, which I know is a, a, a member of the CMBA, an active member of the CMBA. So I started there um, doing doing mortgage defense and uh, I enjoyed it. It was, it was good. Uh, moved over to Severson, you know, a few years later uh, in 2008 and um, into their financial services group. Uh, the group is large. You know, it, it has a lot more than just the mortgage defense. It covers really anything financial services wise. Auto loans, bank operations, credit cards, checking accounts, um, debt collection, credit reporting, TCPA, privacy, all those sorts of things. So when I started out, uh, you know, back in 08, it was more of a mixed bag. It was sort of half mortgage, half all the other things that the financial services umbrella will cover. And then, of course, uh, mortgage crisis hits us and uh, lawsuits start flowing in like a tidal wave. And the focus really got into in the mortgage law. And, you know, it's been it's been interesting. It's been, you know, pretty crazy at times with lawsuits back then and, and adjustments that were made, you know, given federal regulations and California legislation for the California Homeowner Bill of Rights, you know, the HAMP program, the National Mortgage Settlement, all these things uh, that have been going on for the past uh, you know, over a decade. So. Uh, it's 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 been interesting. That's so a bit of a windy road of how I got here, but uh, you know I'm, I'm I'm glad I did. Yeah, yeah, and well, never a dull day too, right? Right. Um, so, do you think that uh, I'm just curious? I I actually had uh, didn't realize you had a, a background in engineering. Do you think that that uh, as you mentioned, sort of that math and science background did that help as far as uh, you know thinking rationally, thinking you know strategically, and uh, you know sort of in a, in a scientific method? Um, our scientific way uh, when it comes to approaching uh, mortgage law. I think it did. You know, a lot of a lot of the engineering training is all about problem solving. Just kind of figuring out, at least in terms of engineering, is what what facts you know, what elements do you know of the equation, and how do you work the equation out to solve the problem. Um, and engineering and all the all the math that goes into it. So 
it's similar to to law you know if, if you're defending these these claims they all have elements okay what are the factors that go into these elements and at least from the defense side how do i attack it in terms of problem solving so it, that kind of mindset breaking it down into its elements i think did transition pretty well from from civil engineering over to to litigating yeah, yeah that makes sense so uh, obviously this last year has been uh, to say the least an, a, uh, an interesting year a, uh, a challenging year for many people for everyone i mean whether or not you uh, you know were touched by the the pandemic personally or whether or not it it uh, you know just you know made your your work and, and personal life just, <laughs> just challenging whether to figure out what you're going to do with kids and and uh, you know working from home and all that so uh, just you know from your perspective what was the biggest lesson you learned uh, whether that's you know professional or personal so i think the lesson kind of goes both personally and even to the industry professionally wise is is how how quickly people adapted to an unprecedented time i mean it's you know monday i'm in the office i'm in the office every day you know working up these cases litigating these cases helping out clients and then all of a sudden Tuesday, I'm 100% at home with my laptop, and you know, my, the attorneys aren't there with me, the staff's not there with me. It's it's just a different a different world, and you know, I, I, it was impressive, you know, as as a firm in Severson how it sort of turned on that dime and maintained you know the level of advocacy and work product that is you know these clients deserve when everyone just kind of scattered. And it's it's similar to what the industry did in, in terms of once this hit and and the CARES Act comes out and there's all these additional requirements and these these forbearance programs going out the door and these borrowers who are you know losing their jobs left and right and the industry turns on a dime and it pretty smoothly goes into assisting these borrowers when it's it's staff all the people that are doing the work are scattered everywhere and. When this first happened, you know, back in April or in May, I thought there's probably going to be a bunch of lawsuits coming out the pipe, you know, later in the year, summer and fall of last year, uh, with servicers just trying to figure out how to navigate through these waters. But it really hasn't been too terrible in terms of litigation. It hasn't been that many. So I think it's a testament to the industry about, you know, how how it can maneuver itself and adapt itself to a, just a crazy, crazy time. Um, you know, maybe the the mortgage crisis you know, from ten years ago or so, you know, got the got them warmed up and and ready to go for something like this because it was it was impressive. You know, that the way the industry helped out its customers so quickly and and was able to adapt to it. Yeah, no, I 100% agree with you. I think that the the you know the experience in 07, 08, 09, and even you know a couple of years even beyond that. You know, I think the servicing departments and uh, just the uh, the speed with which that uh, industry responded to consumer uh, um, concerns, I think you're totally right. I think that was built on, I think those processes were constructed at many companies were constructed in, you know, those years after the financial crisis and during the financial crisis. And I think that they've paid dividends now. And, right. you know, to your point about everyone, you know, um, shifting on a dime to working from home, I, I mean, it's amazing. I shudder to think what what would have happened had this all happened, you know, 10 years ago or 15 years ago when, you know, not every company was built to, I mean, very few companies were built to, uh, you know, work remotely. I think that that would be an interesting, now that I say it out loud, that would be an interesting uh, study to see is how many companies built their work from home strategies or kind of 
built up to being able to work from home just in the last you know five years or less i think that you know a large large percentage of companies have just recently gotten themselves te uh, technologically up to up to speed where they could do something like that and even you know, like five or ten years ago they would have been in a, a real real dire straits yeah that i mean that question back when it was when it was really changing last uh, last spring was I got that a lot with, wow, imagine if this happened 10 years ago. Imagine if it happened 15 years ago, what would you do? You, you couldn't do it. I mean, this, no one was really set up, or I wouldn't say no one, that's you know, pretty pretty broad, but most companies and most of the industries were not set up, I wouldn't think, to to make that change so so quickly. Yeah, what's your, your thought now that we've you know, kind of uh, gone down this uh, rabbit trail a bit, what's your, uh, your take on where the, le the legal system is at right now? Are they, you know, kind of getting back up to speed? Is there more uh, more stuff happening in person, or is it still kind of all happening virtually, and and uh, you know the backlog still there, or is it starting to uh, be relieved a bit? Well, the backlog's still there. Uh, I think most counties, the the trials that haven't gone forward in the pace that we're going forward a year and a half ago, I think that's that's pretty much everywhere. But it's getting there. Um, most courts are, are starting to move to the point of allowing more personal appearances, um, trials, you know, they're changing rules and protocols, allowing more courts to house these trials uh, and get the trials moving along at a, at a better pace. I mean, nothing like how it was before pre-pandemic, but it's getting there. It's, it's in that transition phase, so, which is nice. Um, it was a weird, weird time when, you know, there was no hearings and no trials and nothing. It was just it's an odd pause button, so I'm, I'm glad we're out of that and moving forward uh, slowly but surely to get to get back to as much of normal as possible. Yeah, yeah, same thing with uh, our advocate, uh, the advocacy side of things here in uh, Sacramento with the legislature. They're slowly starting to uh, get back to something approaching normal, but yeah, for the last year, our uh, our lobbying team had to do everything remotely, and mm -hmm. you know, so many times it was you know you talk to our, our lobbyists and. Well, I'm in a parking lot somewhere talking to uh, you know staff from a uh, one of the authors of the bill we're we're working on. It's a very a very strange <laughs> world that we all went through. So, um, speaking of, of, uh, of litigation here, so what from your perspective as a uh, litigator in the industry, what's the most important trend to uh, the watch this year? If I'm just a, if I'm a lender, so I think probably the most important uh, it's pretty pretty good topic right now is the amendments to to regulation x that the cfpb put out uh just last month um that are adding a few things for servicers to do before they can actually move forward with foreclosure so all this is is largely based on these these forbearance plans that were approved last year are coming to an end um the cfpb's final rule that they issued last month had some interesting information in it. Uh, you know, there was something of hundreds of thousands of borrowers that were in these forbearance plans are just now coming out of them, or ending them, or exiting exiting them. Uh, and then it's I think 900,000 more are anticipated through the end of fall. So you got a millions of borrowers who haven't made a loan payment. They've been forbeared on these payments for a year to 18 months. That's just a lot of people. Uh, and what are the servicers going to do with all these these borrowers coming out of these forbearance plans and uh, navigating through these additional requirements that the CFPB put out? So that'll be interesting to see. Um, 
I think that would be that's that's going to have some litigation in it. I think that's and that's going to go on probably for a little bit longer. Uh, you know, these these regulations are in effect for the most part end of August to go through the end of the year, but some of it is is in effect until October of next year. So it's a bit of a probably a longer trend. Um, a couple other smaller ones that I've 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 been noticing. Uh, one is at least in, in my practice, there's a lot more issues with the properties themselves in terms of health and safety code violations and lawsuits brought by cities or counties against borrowers and lenders um, to deal with these maintenance problems. And they they file the the lawsuits. They try to get receivers appointed, things like that. I've seen an influx of that. I think it's you know, largely due to moratoriums, you know, lenders aren't foreclosing, lenders can't evict, these properties are getting dilapidated. And it's a bit of a tough spot because if there is someone living at the property, either the borrower or squatter, you can't evict them because of the moratorium. So these properties just get worse and worse. And they're not necessarily the, the most complicated cases, but they're tedious and time consuming and can get expensive. Um, these receivers get a lot of, a lot of discussion from the court on the work they do, and they can't put liens on the property to reimburse them for their pay, for their their time uh, that is senior to the mortgage loans. So lenders have a balancing test of, okay, do we pay for this and add it to the loan? Do we let the receiver go and possibly put a lien that's senior to ours? You know, how much equity is in the property? So a lot goes into it, but I've, I've seen that uh, percolate up quite a bit, and moratoriums are, are Kind of sunsetting now, so that might end. But I, it, it's been increasing. I think it might increase at least for the for the near future. Uh, and one more one more topic that that uh, I see kind of percolating. I'm curious to see where it goes. Is uh, the issue of of call recordings and and borrowers requesting call recordings in a qualified written response? And so far, the industry stance is these are among other objections. These are confidential and proprietary, and they're not something that they would give in a QWR response. And there's some lawsuits going on now um, saying that that objection is uh, is meritless and failing to provide a recording is, is a violation of the QWR statute. And of course, there's statutory damages that come along with that. So that one's interesting. Um, I don't think either the, the property maintenance or the recording issue is as long term really as the CFPB rules are, but uh, they're trending out there and they're percolating. I think those are at least for the short term, something we're going to see. So do you, so with the, I'm really curious on the, the maintenance one, do you see that? I know in, uh, after the financial crisis in 08, there was a major uh, blight issues that you know, went on for years and years and years because of similar issues. I mean, just the extended period of time it took to, uh, and the, the, the fact that it was extending even then um, to uh, go through the, the default foreclosure and eviction process. Do you, so you don't see that necessarily as a long-term trend right now, more of a, maybe a short-term, uh, short-term headache? I would think so. You know, a lot of the stuff I see is, is the REO properties. So it's, it's bank owned and they just can't evict and can't access the property. Once the uh, eviction moratorium is over now that they're going to start hopefully either getting these you know, getting the eviction process going and accessing the property to to fix it or just selling it out of REO to a private investor, to a private individual and have them deal with it. So it's, it's a couple options. Um, you know, these 
the servicers are not necessarily property managers. They they service loans. They don't want to manage properties, so they'll they'll get these properties off their books as quickly as possible. I would think. Sure, sure, that makes sense. So, um, are there any big cases right now that uh, that you're keeping an eye on as they move through the courts? So, I think the biggest that at least affects, uh, you know, in terms of the defensive servicers for my practice is the the Sheen case that's at the uh, California Supreme Court. So, uh, as you know, this is the the case. Basically, it's it's the issue is whether or not a, a servicer owes the borrower a common law duty of care when it reviews a loan for a modification, as opposed to being just a, a you know contractual arm's length transaction. Uh, it's been an issue for years. Uh, I think this is even with the when the mortgage meltdown was you know a decade ago. This is one of the causes of action they brought. You know, you, you negligently handled my modification, and they bring a claim for negligence against a servicer. So courts are split. Most courts have been on the industry side saying it's, there's no common law duty of care, um, but we'll see. I mean, that would be, if it comes down on the industry side of it, it's, it's kind of like closing the book on a, on a back and forth argument that's been going on for, for a while. Um, and then if, if the Supreme Court comes down on the borrower side, then the plaintiff side of it, then that's just gonna be opening the floodgates to more of these, these lawsuits. Yeah, so that, one's, that one's going to be have an impact for sure. Yeah, I can't imagine what that would do to servicer processes. I mean, I mean, I don't think the servicer heads of servicing and compliance are going to get uh, sleep for you know months on end if that ended up uh, falling on the plaintiff side. What's the? Uh, do you have any idea timeline wise when that's supposed to be uh, decided? When we can expect a decision on that? You know, if you had asked me six months ago, I would have said, oh, three to six months. So <laughs> I don't know, I guess it's the main answer to that question. Uh, hopefully in the next three to six months, we'll get you know oral arguments scheduled there. So uh, just keep yeah, saying three to six months, eventually you'll be right. right? I, yeah, I stick with that and one, I mean, and you'll forget about my prior, you know, false claims or how quickly that'll happen. Yeah, no one's gonna that. So if I'm a lender listening to this, what, uh, from your perspective, what's the maybe the most underestimated uh, litigation threat out there? You know, this is a tough one. I think industry-wide, you know, the lenders and servicers are, are they have their finger on the pulse of what's going on. So they're, they're ready for it. Um, I would say, you know, maybe this, uh, this call recording issue, because uh, it's sort of new, may not have hit the, the radars on a lot of, on a lot of the, uh, the servicers and lenders out there. Uh, but it's one to keep an eye on out, because that, that does make a difference on how, how, servicers respond to these QWRs and it even goes to responding to discovery and litigation for call recordings. Are they, you know, is this going to come down to the point where they're saying, no, these are not confidential and proprietary, that that impacts litigation as well. So uh, it's new. So I think maybe that might be underestimated, but I think it's, it's probably going to get some traction and, and they'll start paying more attention to it as it goes down the line. It's still early. Yeah. Yeah. Well, then, if I'm a uh, if I move from maybe the the C-suite at a, a lender to the um, the uh, compliance or uh, a QA department, what's maybe one thing right now I can do to reduce my risk, either on the call reporting issue or, or on something else? So, you know, the big thing that's that's coming, uh, you know, we touched on before is these these CFPB uh, amendments, and I think my my main recommendation would be to go 
beyond you know what's being asked of the servicer in these amendments if if possible uh, a couple examples one you know they, they define a borrower who's having a, a hardship from COVID as either directly or indirectly related to COVID. Indirectly is a broad term. You can think of a lot of things that indirectly affect you. So in these situations, be over-inclusive however you can to really put maybe put more in the bucket of, of indirectly related to COVID than, than maybe you first initially think, just to make sure you're not dealing with claims of borrowers saying you didn't help me when you should have. Uh, another example is a, a, some of these additional requirements uh, require phone calls, you know, direct calls to the borrower and discussing what their options are, describing the options, giving details and specifics of, of what those options entail. And that's great. And usually these are, they're on phone calls that the servicer will notate these in its, in its servicing platform. But the the requirement doesn't include anything about a letter, any confirming letter or anything in writing. And I, I think it's due to the fact this was sort of a, a quick you know, emergency situation where they're not going to have the, the servicer start all these processes and protocols for drafting letters. But if you can, I, I would say you should. And the reason being, in, in my mind, when these claims come down, um, you know, these lawsuits are filed, what ammunition do I have in my arsenal to defend it? Um, you know, I have the, the the note logs where the calls are documented, which is great. Uh, call recordings of the calls, fantastic. Um, but then you have a letter as well. You have a written letter saying, you know, pleasure speaking with you as discussed. Here are possible options and you list them out and you describe them, uh, which servicers have been doing already. Uh, but do those in these instances as well, because then I'll, now I have a letter. You know, I've got a document that I can put on a declaration and I can have in court in addition to a, a note log um, and a call recording. It's just going a little, doing a little extra, a little more than what's necessarily required to give you that extra line of defense uh, and hopefully avoid the risk down the line. Or if, if there is a lawsuit filed, then we've got a bunch of evidence to dispute whatever it is they're claiming. Yeah, maintain that paper trail and, you know, keep it uh, abundant. It right. Like. Right. Yeah, makes sense. I think that's good. Uh, a good practical takeaway for uh, for listeners here. So um, we're uh, down to the uh, last question here, last couple of minutes. So uh, I know that uh, you've been a, a big supporter of the California NBA for a number of years. You actually participated. I forgot to mention this at the outset. Uh, Jar was a, a former uh, uh, participant in our Future Leaders program. Yep. And so he's been certainly involved in the association for a long time. And so I'm curious from your, your perspective here, you know, if you're speaking to someone who's not a member, not yet a member, I should say, um, what uh, what's your take on uh, why it's important for uh, uh, firms and attorneys like you to support the uh, uh, advocacy and grassroots efforts of groups like the California NBA or even the, the National NBA? Well, I it, it's just it's an extremely valuable source of industry information. I mean, both what the industry is doing. And more specific to, to me on the litigation side, what claims are going out there, what what statutes are, are being drafted by the California legislature, you know, what's in the pipeline. Um, you know, luck favors the prepared. So being able to go to the legal issue web webinars, to the conferences, the, the future leader program where you you network and you meet different people in different areas of the industry. Um, so you can kind of just accumulate the information you need at least from my perspective, to 
defend these lawsuits and to advise you know lenders and servicers on how to deal with several things that are happening now and things that you know are happening you know six months to a year from now based on what the legislature is doing um, which is it's just incredibly you know incredibly informative you know necessary information if you want to be able to to practice um, in the area in my opinion yeah no I appreciate that yeah I think that's uh, again uh, good advice for uh, folks out there who maybe are not uh, not yet a member so uh, so John, hey, appreciate the uh, appreciate the time today. Um, good to uh, good to see you. Hopefully, you see you in person later this year at uh, one of our conferences. Now that we're starting to open back up, um, and if someone wants to get in touch with you uh, for uh, information about uh, what you guys do there, how can they best reach out to you? Uh, so first, uh, Dustin, I appreciate it. Good to see you as well. Uh, hope to see you in person soon. Um, so to get in touch with me, you can email. Uh, my email address is my initials J M is in Mary, C is in Cat at severson.com severson is s-e-v-e-r-s-o-n.com or you can call me uh my number is 949-225-7943 all right we'll make sure and put that in the uh, description as well and uh, if you enjoyed the conversation here make sure and subscribe to us on our youtube channel you can also find us on soundcloud spotify and apple Podcasts. we'll be back again next week for our final july episode of connect we'll see you then here we go